Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is our last episode for the year. That rhymed. Um, I'm not going to do that every time. Anyway, uh, this is Christ is the Law Part 2, and this is our Christmas special-ish. And we're going to wrap up our discussion from last week, and so I'm going to assume that you listened to last week's episode. Uh, really, I think you can get it without that episode uh, if you're jumping in, but... Uh, it does make it more full and makes the connections make more sense, I think. And so this one, this episode, part two, will wrap up the discussion on the personification of Torah, the personification of Mimra, Lagos, wisdom, etc. And then we'll go into other aspects of Christ is the law. And then I'll briefly talk about some common objections that I've heard. And then, then we'll close it. And this will be, again, the last episode for the year, I will have the podcast back up sometime, I'm going to say February. I don't know when in February, but we're going to be prepping and we're going to move on into the Tulip series. I've already talked about that several times, so I'm not going to rehash it. So let's get into it now. And again, this is presupposing that you have listened to the last episode. This is section five on wisdom, law, and Christ. Um, and we drew those parallels with with Christ and wisdom, Torah, Memra, Lagos. And in Jesus's life, we find parallels with personified wisdom that exemplifies those parallels that we drew uh, in the last episode. And you see these connections in Paul, too. Paul says in Colossians 2.3 that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in 1 Corinthians 1.30. So let's summarize some of those parallels that exemplify this, and I'm going to rely again on the work of Heo, and he has particular citations if you want to go look at that, uh, again, in the resources. But let's begin. So in the I Am sayings of Jesus, we find parallels not only with the Old Testament in numerous cases that identify Jesus as the eternal Son of God, but these I Am sayings also have interesting parallels with personified wisdom in Jewish wisdom literature that we discussed last time. Um, additionally, just as wisdom calls people to follow her and come and see her, so Jesus does with his disciples. Uh, wisdom raises her voice and cries out in public spaces, as Jesus does. Wisdom calls her audience children. Jesus calls his disciples children. There is a sense of this father or uh, child or teacher-student relationship in both of the cases. Both warn of the future, ask for repentance and the return to the Word of God. Uh, both are rejected. Both foresee a banquet and are considered a source of life. And there's also this parallel of wisdom in Proverbs 8 as a sage or teacher of Torah, which obviously we have Jesus as a sage or teacher in the Gospels, and we know him as expounding the Torah. We've explained that a little bit, um, and you see that obviously exemplified in texts like Matthew 5 with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. through 7. So now let's just talk about Jesus in relation to the law in general. So when we think of Jesus in relation to the law, we find that he completely embodies the essence of the law and perfectly loving God and neighbor and fulfilling it to the fullest degree and fulfilling all of its types and shadows. He is not only the law in the sense of its fulfillment, but also in the sense of him being the source of the law as the divine logos. He exegetes the law. He explains the law, right? He claims authority over the law, specifically thinking about uh, the discussions on the Sabbath that he has with the Pharisees. And in these discussions with the Pharisees, he says, no, I am the Lord over the Sabbath, uh, which is a tantamount to saying, I am the law. I am the standard. I, I have authority over this, right? Um, not only this, but he presents an understanding of the law that goes to the roots of its purpose beyond the practices of his contemporaries, right? 
And you see that throughout the Gospels as well. Um, and we find out that that purpose or that telos, that end of the law, is in Christ. And we see this specifically in Romans 10. And what's interesting about Romans 10 is that Paul utilizes texts that were once applied to the Torah and applied it to Jesus. And he says that Jesus is the telos of the law. So it is in his perfect fulfillment of the law that Charles Spurgeon will call Jesus the law incarnate. If you remember um, the discussions back when I quoted Charles Spurgeon, and this is the context in which Charles Spurgeon says that Jesus is the law incarnate because of his um, exemplary fulfillment and his embodiment of the law's essence. He also applies this in terms of righteousness, but we'll get there in a little bit. Now, since a lot of this is already known, these discussions on the fulfillment, you know, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, he is the fulfillment of the types and shadows. We're going to move beyond the Gospels um, and just presuppose that you have knowledge of that. Now, looking at James, the letter of James, he uses the word law, namas, um, but what we find is that in James 2, 8-12, he mentions a royal law, which is best identified as the golden rule, and he expands on this in his epistle, um, indicating that these are the moral norms that are expected of this Old Testament law, right? It's summed up. This is the heart and essence. This is what it looks like, which is really what we find with Paul whenever he says that the law is summed up in love. It's exemplified according to John as well in his first epistle, and that God is described as love, and the one who loves God will love his neighbor. Um, in James 1, 21 through 25, we find this connection between the law and the word in logos and the implanted logos, which is able to save your soul. And we are called to be doers of the logos, not hearers only, abiding in the perfect namos, law of liberty. Again, namos is the Greek term for law um, that would have its parallel with Torah and the Hebrew. So again, James 1, 21 through 25, we find that connection between law and the word and the implanted uh, word is able to save your soul, and you're called to be doers of the word, not hearers only, abiding in the perfect law of liberty. Um, it is the word and law of Christ, uh, I would argue, that James has in mind here, and Paul would call it the law of Christ in Galatians, uh, which really, it <laughs> um, you could summarize it as the authoritative standard that contains the moral heart of the Old Testament law. And again, there are many discussions and debates about um, how the law can be broken up, whether or not it should be broken up, um, whether or not um, there's there's a lot of debates around that. So we're not getting into that. We're just focusing on this narrow topic, and it's, it's kind of hard, but what are you going to do? Uh, so John, in his first epistle, tells believers to heed the commandments of God, and he says that um, he is writing to you a commandment that is not new, but an old commandment, which is, of course, the commandment to love. And then you see this, this um, tightly knit understanding of God's word or logos being tied up with keeping his commandments, which scholars have postulated this as being a callback to the Decalogue or the Ten Words or Ten Commandments. And you see that in 1 John 2 as well. Um, so the book of Hebrews also speaks a good deal about the, the supersession of the Mosaic Code, especially in regards to the priesthood and sacrifices. The book of Hebrews is just just loaded, really. Uh it's amazing. Anyway, the author of Hebrews makes this case that the old codes made nothing perfect, and he predicates this on the, the inability of these codes to affect forgiveness of sin and bring believers into the presence of God. And instead of this old code, we have this new 
covenant found in Christ, and Christ is superior to the old code, which points to Christ. The law is a shadow of the substance of Christ himself, right? And we're familiar with that language um, in the circles of Christianese, and so we'll move on. Now, for Paul, the law convicts and points to the need of Christ and pointed to Christ himself. Uh, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, which was it produced death and could never bring about salvation. It is in Paul that we find this clearest contrast between Christ and the law. In fact, on this debate of, is Christ the law?, Paul was evoked because of his clear contrast, and that really has to do with um, how the law was being utilized and understood um, in his day. Uh, specifically, the contrast is made between Christ and the law on soteriological grounds. Uh, Paul speaks highly of the written code, saying that it let us know what sin is. He calls it holy. He calls it just. He calls it good. He roots his ethics in the contents of the Torah still. Um, in Romans 7, 12 through 14, 1 Timothy 1, 8, Romans 13, 8 through 10, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. And he, like others in the New Testament, point out that the demands of the law are reduced or summarized in loving God and loving neighbor. And you see this in Galatians 5, 13. Now, Paul's negative discussion on the law are against those still insisting that the way of salvation is by adherence to the code. And against this, Paul points out that it is only through union with Christ by faith that we will be declared righteous. It is only in Christ that we will be forgiven and have the law fulfilled on our behalf. So this contrast between law and Christ is mainly on its soteriological function. How are you saved? Are you saved by law or are you saved by Christ? Are you saved by Christ and only through Christ? Um, and so that's that's the, the crux there. But he still has a high view of the law, and so that needs to be maintained as well. But I'm going to focus on that last statement where it is only in Christ that we have the law fulfilled on our behalf. In this sense, Christ is our righteousness, right? He fulfilled the law, and being united to him is our fulfillment of the law and meets all the righteous requirements of God. He is the law to us. He is our means of fulfilling the law. Uh, and so, in this sense, we can say that because of the law's demands for perfection, and because Christ fulfilled the law, and because we're united to Christ, he is the law for us. We have fulfilled the law in Christ. And this, this really has an interesting implication on the the Torah observance movement, um, which some people were concerned about my statements in relation to the, the Torah observant um, individuals who are coming out. But really, this reality of Christ as fulfilling all these types and shadows of the law and being the law unto us makes meaningless the attempts to obey the old covenant requirements of Torah observance. But instead, we find that um, everything has been superseded by the new Torah, that is the law of Christ. By the way, I, I tried to record this whenever it wasn't raining, and then it just started raining harder, so I apologize for rain that comes in um, that comes in the background. I, I can't really do much about that. I have a metal roof. Um, so Christ fulfilled all the law and all the prophets perfectly. Everything in the Mosaic Code and the Mosaic Corpus, that is the body of Moses' literature, points to Christ. The shadows of Christ point to him. The substance of those shadows are Christ himself. So looking at one example, we say that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And this is true. Even though this was a shadow, we can say he was our Passover lamb. And at the same time, we also affirm that Christ is the substance of the shadow who is better and infinitely sufficient compared to the Passover lamb that came before. He is both our manna and also the infinitely sustaining manna. These types and shadows of the Old Testament abound. You, you can find them everywhere. People have written books on it. 
the tabernacle's contents pointed to Christ, the altar, the purification um, from the labor, the light of the golden lamp set, the bread from the showbread, the, the offering of incense, the door through the veil, the presence of God tabernacled among us. Uh, the tabernacle was the means by which uh, Israelites met with God, yet we meet through Christ. Christ is our high priest. He fulfilled all offerings. And even the contents of the Ark of the Covenant and the substance of the festivals have been found in Christ. Their, their telos, their end, their, their, their purpose is found in Christ. He is the better Adam, the better David, the better mediator, the greater king. From Genesis to Malachi, Christ can be seen. Um, and so there are several senses here where Jesus is the law or Torah. And while some will say, well, you know, the law was a shadow of Christ and pointed to Christ, we can say that Christ is the law in that sense, the same way that we can say that the Passover lamb was a shadow of Christ. And even though he fulfills the shadow and is better than the shadow, uh, we can still say he is the lamb in the most excellent sense. So there are several senses where, again, we can say Jesus is the law or Torah theologically, whether in a more broad sense or even more narrow sense in regards to uh, the requirement of the Mosaic law. He is the law to us as our righteous requirement of the law, and he's a better and new law, though John calls it an old law because of the essence of the law being love God, love your neighbor. Jesus is the law incarnate with the essence of the law deriving from God's nature. Um, now, what's interesting is that the event of the transfiguration, if you don't know that event, go look it up. We find this echo of the experience of Mount Sinai with the Exodus, um, to which Waltz from the New Testament use of the Old Testament states, with Mark's intertextionality, these echoes serve a purpose to frame how one understands the transfiguration. He summarizes essentially that the transfiguration shows that Mark has this idea of a new Exodus way and that you have this reconstituted vision of Messiahship, Torah, and therefore Israel in the transfiguration. Uh, Christologically, he says, as in the water, so now on the mountain, Jesus, attested by Elijah and Moses at the climax of Israel's soteriological hopes, is declared to be God's messianic son of man, through whose suffering and vindication Jerusalem will be purified and the temple restored. Beyond both Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet, Jesus is the living embodied word of the newly reconstituted Torah, around whom a reconstituted people of God gather in the new Exodus. He continues in regard to ecclesiology, saying, um, For this restored Israel, the Son of God, and called to be holy as I am holy, Jesus' teaching in general and his word of the cross-bearing discipleship in particular are the essence of the Torah that defines them. Not only is Jesus its supreme interpreter, but also his words carry the authority of the one who gave it. And so there are several, several threads you can pull together to say Jesus is the law. And we're going to focus on one of them in particular here in a little bit, um, but let's move on real quick to early church law in Christ, and this is section six. So the views expressed up to this point um, were carried on by the early church to one extent or another, uh, though with sharper distinction between the essence of the law or, or the moral law and the codes of the law, um, no longer being effects such as circumcision, sacrifice, etc. Um, and really, you start seeing the early conceptions of the Decalogue uh, forming the tripart division of the law, right? Ceremonial, uh, moral, and um, civil laws, right? But the Decalogue in the early church held a very high position still, albeit with um, allegorical or hyper-spiritualized interpretations. For example, the Sabbath was resting from sin, which is interesting, but nonetheless... 
Leo Davis in his history on the seven ecumenical councils, whenever he's summarizing views of Christology, says, quote, another way used by those influenced by Jewish ideas to express the, the significance of the son was to identify him with the law, the Torah taken from its active sense as God establishing laws. Justin Martyr calls Christ at the same time law and covenant, and it was prophesied that Christ, the son of God, was to be an eternal law and a new covenant for the whole world. Christ is the law and covenant in his existence and is all-embracing divine reality, which is present in the man, Jesus, in the world. And so that kind of shows where Justin's Logos uh, had this tight connection with the law and covenant. Um, and then this same idea is expressed elsewhere, but just not verbatim, not in the same same way. Augustine, for example, expressed that those um, people who are blessed are those who are formed in Torah. Um, quote, what better law of God is there, after all, than the Holy Gospel? It is the law of the New Testament about which you have heard. And that's in Sermon 25. Origen would say something like um, the divine character of the prophetic writings and the spiritual meaning of the law were only revealed in the coming of Christ. Um, and you, you start seeing this kind of echoed um, throughout church history. But there's this distinction still between Christ and the law, and Christ is superior to the law in every instance, and which is what we would still say today. So a summary uh, is in order. So a brief summary. And the summary is a summary of part one up to this point. So there is a real sense that when someone was reading John's gospel for the first time and they read John 1.1 and saw Logos, they would have likely thought of the law in some sense or another. Now, John obviously modifies the views of uh, his contemporaries. And we talked about that briefly in the last episode. Um, but you see this understanding of Logos or Mimra, uh, and Jewish and Hellenistic Jewish thought. So while we often try to isolate the two, uh, that is the Jewish and, and Greek versions of Logos or Word, there is certainly evidence of overlap in scholarship. And this is really where the critiques about the, those who are saying that Christ can't be the law on the basis of Logos um, because they would limit the Logos to this idea of Stoic thought, that is Greek philosophy, but that doesn't seem right, especially whenever John's gospel focuses heavily upon Jesus as the divine son incarnate. And that's really where John diverges from his contemporaries and saying that the Logos is the son of God, same in essence, and became incarnate, thus perfectly revealing the nature of God. Furthermore, we talked about the connection between the Logos and personified wisdom. Um, and while some have debated that, I find that's a hard sell to reject those connections, especially in light of how um, we see Hebrews understanding at Colossians, and then we see the New Testament or post-New Testament writings uh, speak about those connections, and so that's significant as well. Um, what becomes difficult is determining the precise understanding of personified wisdom in Christ, given the similarities. I take the position that it's best to understand personified wisdom as a type of Christ, and that it is the Word who is the fount of wisdom. So what about Jesus as the law? Well, so far we can say the following. Jesus is the living word of God. The law is the written word of God. Ergo, it would not be wrong to make that connection. The essence of the law is love and loving God and loving neighbor. God is love. Therefore, uh, we can make that connection too. Uh, this also makes a connection with the reality that the law is from the very nature of God's character, which is revealed perfectly in the incarnate son. Um, and Christ is superior to the law, but just as he is superior to the Passover lamb, but we can call him the Passover lamb, we can identify him with the law theologically in that sense. Um, further, the entire law, the five books of Moses and the prophets pointed to, find their fulfillment in Christ. Thus, it follows that he is 
the law. But here's, here's kind of the kicker for me is that um, individuals who reject this claim that Christ is the law will say that, yeah, Christ is the types and shadows of all these components of the law. He is our Passover lamb. He is our Sabbath. He is our high priest. He is our mediator and so on and so forth. And these are all components of the law, whether the five books of Moses or identified in their expression and the codes of Moses. And so it's strange to say that we can't summarize the fulfillment of all these types by just calling Christ the law. I mean, we're happy to attribute to him all the law's components. It's kind of strange to make that disconnect. Now we mentioned that the words light and word were designated for God's instruction or Torah or law. Uh, and thus we find that connection along with um, this discussion, the reality that Jesus is our righteousness and he is the light and he is the word. But where we're really going to sit is that Jesus is the law in respect to our justification. And this is back to where we were talking about Charles Spurgeon earlier. Um, and this is the continuity with Charles Spurgeon, where he said that Christ is the law incarnate. And he made this claim on the basis of Christ's active and perfect obedience in fulfilling the law. Now, a little sidebar here that's going to tie it into the controversy that took place on the show The Chosen, whether or not they utilize the Book of Mormon, is that the Book of Mormon and Charles Spurgeon get to the phrase about Jesus being the law in the same way. Uh, and that's kind of a point that I was trying to make whenever I was quoting Spurgeon, but it seemed to be missed. Uh, most of the Book of Mormon is a plagiarized version of the King James Version and Christian ideas mixed in with myths of Smith. And so not everything is bad. It's really deceptive in that way. And that's what makes it so dangerous. But in this context where it says, I am the law in relation to Jesus, it's making the same connections that Charles Spurgeon made in his sermon, that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law and that he is the righteousness of the law. Uh, and so... It, that was just an interesting dynamic to see taking place whenever people would be like, well, I agree with Spurgeon. I don't agree with the Book of Mormon. It's like, did you read the Book of Mormon? Did you see how the Book of Mormon plagiarized this Christian idea? Anyway, um, back to the topic, apart from the controversy, the law cannot justify. Only Christ can justify. And he is our justification who imputes justification on our behalf. He transfers justification to our accounts, right? So the law like the previous types and shadows, were good in their context. They're holy and righteous, as Paul says, but they're insufficient for salvation. And so the better has come, and that better is Christ. He is our Sabbath, he is our Lamb, he is our light, he is our bread, he is our law, the new Adam, the new David, and so on. And we can see this juxtaposition culminating in the book of Galatians, where there's this, uh, this contrast between the Old Covenant and what Paul calls the law of Christ. The latter phrase is heavily debated and beyond my focus again. But I want to quote Gentry and Wellam on the law here. Quote, in its typological patterns, the sacrificial system, tabernacle, temple, priesthood, it pointed forward to how God would save. In the end, God's righteousness comes apart from the old covenant and is found only in the new covenant, that to which the law pointed. For a time, the Mosaic law supervised God's people, but now that Christ has come, its supervisory work is done. And that's kingdom through covenant. Brian Vickers in Jesus' Blood and Righteousness states simply, Quote, Christ's fulfilling of all righteousness, his obedience to the Father's will and commandments in his role as the second Adam, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection that vindicates the cross and ushers in a new eschatological era, becomes ours by faith in union with him and is on this basis that a believer is reckoned righteous. Assuming the active obedience of Christ, David Van Drunum, in the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, explains, quote, In justification, God both forgives believers and reckons them as keepers of his law. From this perspective, that is, active obedience's imputation, 
Justification is a declaration of righteousness and not simply a declaration of innocence. And, quote, God imputes righteousness to believers, a righteousness that consists in perfect obedience to his law. Yet believers can never be indifferent as to what righteousness that is in particular. God credits to them a specific righteousness, the personal obedience of his son, the God-man. It is not just any righteousness, but the righteousness of God. Believers are personally united to the one whose righteousness appears in their account. This is no accounting trick. There is no fiat money or debased currency involved. This is a real righteousness that believers claim as their own through an everlasting union with the one who was obedient unto death. And so we have this idea of imputed obedience of Jesus, his complete fulfillment of the law being credited to our account, where Jesus is the law in regards to our justification. Um, Brandon Crow, in the same book, uh, but in his own article, which, by the way, if you don't have the book, excellent book. It's a whole book on justification with um, biblical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, and pastoral application. Um, fantastic. But anyway, um, Brandon Crow states, quote, It is the unified obedience of Jesus that provides the ground of justification. It is therefore unnecessary and indeed impossible to divide the obedience of Jesus into some aspects that are more necessary than others for salvation. For the death of Christ is not isolated from the rest of his life, but it is the crowning achievement of his entire incarnate obedience. This is good news, because if only the death of Christ were applied to us in justification, we would not have met the covenantal requirements for eternal life. But thanks be to God that we were justified on the basis of his entire perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, that grace might reign through righteousness unto eternal life. And he cites Romans 5.21. And this whole concept is really one that permeates Reformed theology, Evangelical theology, um, basically uh, most non-Catholic theologies, right? Um, and John Bunyan, in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, says, quote, My righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, end quote. And he used this as a remedy against his own lack of righteousness. Um, these convictions of justification are likely held by those who are listening to this show. And so we're familiar with these extensive discussions that go along with the subject, including the role of Jesus to fulfill the righteousness um, in the Gospels um, through the discussions on the Reformation on justification. But it's on the basis of God as our righteousness that Charles Spurgeon could say that Christ was the law incarnate. And by being united to Christ, we have fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus is the law unto us in that sense. Now, let's talk about a couple of the objections that kind of summarize all, most of the objections we got. A lot of them are kind of covered already, so we'll kind of hit on it fairly quickly. So a common one, uh, which was a little bit surprising, was the idea that because Jesus, as the law, is not explicitly stated in Scripture, we cannot claim it as a theological truth. Now, this has already kind of been addressed because we talked about how we're happy to identify the components of the law, and we're happy to say all the Old Testament points to Christ— and I'm just thinking, well, why can't we just say that all these components of the law that are types of shadows of Christ can be summarized in Christ is the law? But in either case, this argument really is not strong. Um, for example, Jesus never called himself the eternal son. Um, neither is he called God in the flesh or God incarnate. But those are titles that we've used for Jesus for hundreds of years. And it doesn't mean that it's improper to call him that. We can call him God in the flesh, God incarnate, the eternal Son of God, God the Son, um, appropriately, because these are theologically accurate titles. And those are titles that he never identifies himself with. 
but we can use them, and they have been used, rightly so, historically. In fact, even calling Jesus incarnate is kind of kind of wrong if you think about it, because the, the term incarnate is a Latin term from John 1.14, and so what are you going to do? Um, now, another objection was the contrast of Paul between the law and Christ, and we've already addressed that. There's this soteriological contrast of the role of the law and the role of Christ um, and how to deal with the problem of sin. And um, ultimately that's answered in what I've said before, but also the law doesn't make the law less from the character of God, nor does it mean that he was less an embodiment of the law. Um, Paul in Romans 7 speaks to this as well. Chrysostom and Paul point out that to have Christ is to have righteousness and it is to have the law fully fulfilled for us on our behalf. And all the other objections were kind of already dealt with, like the idea between logos and, and the law and the word and things of that nature. I, I think they're all handled pretty properly. And and back in the during the discussions we had, um, I quoted Stephen Wellam's um, essay, The Law of God. It's a great read. And then R.C. Sproul's discussion on Psalm 119 is really good, too in light of progressive revelation, uh, especially just go read that Psalm and think about how it articulates um, the dynamics between um, the law and the word and things of that nature. So I think that we don't really need to spend much more time here. So, so let's, let's go to one last thing and then we'll close it for sure. And that last point is why did I call these a Christmas special ish? And it's really because all of this is centered around the beautiful gift of the incarnate son who fulfilled every type and shadow, who fulfilled every requirement of the law on our behalf so that we can meet the righteous demands of Christ and who also took our penalty on the cross in his passive obedience. And that because Jesus was incarnate, because he took on everything that makes us human, we can find ourselves in our union with him being sanctified by the Holy Spirit unto the glory of the Father, and one day being glorified to look like Christ, free from our imperfections, because that which Christ has assumed, he has healed. Our mind will be healed, our soul will be healed, this flesh will be healed, and we will be able to live in the presence of God and his saints forever. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful Christmas season. Um, I look forward to starting the next series with y'all. And until next year, God bless you all. If you enjoy Christ as a Cure, if you want to support what we're doing here, become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Christ as a Cure. And God bless you all. <laughs>